Hey everybody, welcome to Brain Over Belly. I am David Brown from Everest Surgical Institute and Idaho BMI. This podcast is all about solving the puzzle of obesity and the other diseases that are overwhelming our society and shortening our lives. It is high time for a new approach and better understanding of what is really going on. What we are witnessing isn't normal. I want to pivot in a new direction. Let's get started now by putting the pieces of the puzzle together. Thank you for joining us. For the video version of Brain Over Belly, visit our Idaho BMI channel on youtube.com. Hey everybody, this is Brain Over Belly. I'm David Brown from Idaho BMI. I have with me today Kate Armstrong, nurse practitioner. Good afternoon. Uh, Today's topic, it's something we've talked about before, and that is GLP-1 and what are known as analogs of GLP-1. These are weight loss injections. We are deep diving today. This is the most detailed explanation and treatment of normal functioning GLP-1 in the body and the weight loss injections being used for both diabetes and weight loss. Um, Hang in there with us. This is going to be a very in-depth, long, very detail-oriented, very technical, very scientific. We got a lot of material. It's taken a long time accumulating all of this data. Uh, But I think if you will... Dig in with us, follow it, and learn the concepts that we present each slide at a time. You will come away. Here's a bold bold statement. <clears throat> you will know more about GLP-1 and these weight loss injections than any physician you meet. I'm very comfortable saying that. Um, our background, of course, is uh, bariatric surgery. It's almost all... Uh, that we do, our bariatric clinic. Um, But the name of this podcast is Brain Over Belly. And for at least five years, I've been arguing that obesity is primarily a neurological disease. And so this is something we've been studying, thinking about, and learning about for a long time. So it's not just a response to these injectables, but really, I think that it's a big deal and um, a lot of providers that are prescribing them don't know a whole lot about this. Which is only fair when you look at how uh, GLP-1 is supposedly used in the body, at least dogmatically, the um, path of it through the body. We've been taught a certain way and I think it's just been the last couple of years where you've really been putting things together, seeing that it doesn't necessarily apply the same way. So, switch up some of the dogma today. Yeah. So I would tell you there's this very, very significant disconnect between what is claimed about these injectables and what is true, what the scientific data show us. And so again, welcome. Glad you're with us. Hang in there. Be patient. Um, This is extremely technical. All right. So GLP-1 analogs, how do they really work? Are they miracle drugs? First of all, GLP-1, you know what it stands for? Glucagon-like peptide 1, uh, GLP-1. 
So that's a very important molecule that this whole conversation today on this podcast is going to be based. So we're going to start out with some uh, simple trivia question, Kate. You want to? Trivia. Oh, which of the following molecules is found at elevated levels in the blood of individuals with obesity and, and diabetes mellitus 2? So options A, GLP-1, insulin, GIP, or glucose-dependent insulinotropic peptide, DPP-4, glucagon, neuropeptide Y. These are all very important, what are known as peptides in the human body. Any guesses? I love multiple choice questions. Yeah. I feel like they all answer themselves, but just knowing what we know, it's G, all of the above. Yes, all of these peptides or hormones are found in higher than normal levels in active form in people who are obese or have diabetes type 2. All right, so that's a seed to consider. So let's consider type 2 diabetes as a model of what we're going to talk about. So type 2 diabetes. Um, if you look at fasting insulin levels, insulin is a hormone created by the pancreas. In diabetes and in pre-diabetes, you see on this diagram, you start in the green normal function. You got normal level glucose, normal level of insulin. Um, and a person is insulin sensitive. Well, they develop pre-diabetes. And you notice the first thing that happens is their fasting or their insulin level increases. And with that, you see a corresponding, uh, some degree of insulin resistance. In other words, the body is not responding normally to insulin. Um, and that increases until a person's pancreas thought that it starts, or it, at some point it no longer can keep up with the body's need for insulin. And so its ability to generate it goes down. The, the important point here is that in diabetes, in pre-diabetes, insulin in the body is elevated. It's higher than normal. And so what is done uh, classically is one of the options for treating diabetes is to give people insulin to try to bring down their glucose levels in their blood. And this graph uh, shows when you do that, when you just treat diabetes with insulin, what happens to mortality? And this is called a Kaplan-Meier curve. In blue there, you see the survival rate go down quite quickly. The green line, that's... Um, other therapies, including insulin. But if you use insulin alone, when a person has higher than normal insulin in their bodies, it is a bad thing and increases mortality. And that one just had insulin plus metformin, which is a pretty common yeah. regimen, but the change in mortality is incredible. Just right. Increasing insulin sensitivity too. Right. Point is, you give someone insulin, you go after one variable that you're trying to change, you end up doing a lot of damage. So next, this uh, looks at GLP-1 with insulin in mind in diabetes. And what you see there is that uh, in people, it's NGT, that's normal glucose tolerance, pre-diabetes, pre-DM, and T2-DM is type 2 diabetes. So fasting 
GLP-1 is elevated. It's higher than normal in people who um, are both pre-diabetic and diabetic. And you see that at all points, it's higher. So in people who have diabetes, they have elevated GLP-1 in their blood, uh, just like they have elevated insulin in their blood. So let's broaden it a little bit. Let's look at fasting GLP levels and um, factors of what's called metabolic syndrome. Metabolic syndrome, uh, this term was coined late 80s, Jerry Rivas, I want to say, insulin resistance syndrome. So metabolic syndrome is a constellation of higher than normal blood pressure, high fasting glucose, increase uh, hip to or waist to hip ratio. Dyslipidemia. High, let's see, high triglycerides, low HDL. And this in this study, they show that as a person has more factors of metabolic syndrome, the GLP-1 in their blood um, is higher and higher. So over the last couple of slides, what I'm seeing is that looking at insulin resistance as part of diabetes, it's kind of a late factor. There are constellations of things that happen earlier, that insulin resistance and that higher insulin level and higher blood glucose eventually. It's just a, it's a progression. Sure. I mean, it's the time sequence is debatable. Um, but yeah, when, when people's fasting insulin starts going up, that usually happens before blood glucose goes up. Already their GLP-1 is elevated. Mm-hmm. Um, this slide looks at GLP-1 receptors. So we'll talk more about this. But GLP-1, the, the canonical, the traditional dogma is that GLP-1 is a hormone floating around in your blood. And it's recognized by what we call receptors. These are on the surface of cells. They recognize that GLP-1 molecule. And it requires that GLP-1 molecule attaching to the GLP-1 receptor to cause this effect. Uh, What they found is in, this is in a lean group of people and in an obese group of people. What they found is Obese people had fewer GLP-1 receptors, uh, both in the portal vein, which is really the liver, and in the pancreas. So, of course, one of the questions is, why does someone who is obese or diabetic, why do they have more GLP-1 in their blood than normal? This, I think, is a very insightful part of that most likely. In other words, they have fewer receptors in key areas, and so the the level of GLP-1 is building up in their blood. And correct me where I'm wrong on this, but traditionally we've been taught that GLP-1 is created in the gut and then travels around the body and is acted on in the pancreas, correct? That is traditional dogma. We'll get to that. Um, So, again, based on uh, the model of uh, diabetes, type 2 diabetes, and insulin... Looking at GLP-1 levels, you have to ask the question, are obese or diabetic individuals GLP-1 resistant? Same findings on the surface. Okay, so let's back up. Um, The GLP-1 molecule, uh, 29 to 30 amino acid peptide, and it's created from the pre-proglucagon gene uh, so that gene can express, or it's based out of chromosome two, um, and that 
Go ahead. Yeah, so in the chromes, where the actual gene is, that gene is called preproglucagon. When it's called transcribed, you get this peptide, this group of amino acids attached to each other. That is the peptide. That's preglucagon. Preglucagon is the peptide. Yep. Okay, which can then be transformed into... Number of different things. Number of different things, yeah. But yeah, it's on found on chromosome number two for anybody interested in that. So here, if anybody is not familiar with the Human Protein Atlas, it's a website, absolutely astonishingly powerful resource. It's a Scandinavian, I think it's Norway. Uh, it's a database for proteins in humans. Um, Everything you wanted to know about very specific proteins and their structure, where what cells, what organs make these proteins or peptides, it's an incredible resource. So, side note: do not, look, I mean, absolutely look it up, but do not look it up unless you have hours to get lost in there because it is amazing. Only if you're a nerd, though. Okay, so again, the GCG that is the preproglucagon. Gene, and if you look about, look at what tissues, what organs in the body express this gene, it, it's a fairly limited number of tissues. You see in the pancreas, of course, um, in the colon, and in the small intestine. Very important, um, but it's also produced in the brain. Um, you see medulla oblongata. Very important structure we've talked about on this podcast before. Very important structure in the brain that produces that gene product or that peptide. Now, as Kate, you mentioned, that what we call transcript, that collection of peptides attached to it together in a string, that can be broken down, spliced or broken down in different ways. And depending on which enzymes are involved in that process, you get a different product. So, so we have glucagon, GLP-1, GLP-2. Those are the ones I'm familiar with. Are these other boxes other products, or this is just, I don't know, what are those? Well, oxymodulin, it, that actually is a, it's a peptide that will bind both glucagon and GLP-1 receptors. You got glycentin, not a lot is known about that. So, the peptides we know most about are glucagon, GLP-1, GLP-2. All of those come from this gene product. Up there on the left, you see uh, PC-1-3, PC-2. These are the enzymes that cleave this peptide in different places. So PC-1-3, it's pro-hormone hormone convertase-1-3. That cuts it in a way that generates GLP-1. PC2 generates glucagon. Again, this is hyper-technical. It turns out to be incredibly important uh, because you can also use this same human protein atlas to look, well, what tissues express those specific enzymes? Just fascinating. Um, okay, so a basic concept, and that is what we will call ligand and receptor. So in that diagram, you see what is what we call a synapse. That's between neurons communicating to each other. So in the brain, there's estimated to be about 100 billion neurons. In the gut, there's about 100 million neurons. Um, there's a bunch in the heart. Anyway, two brain cells talking to each other. 
one sends a chemical or a neurotransmitter, um, releases it. You see that little gap there. It's a tiny, tiny, tiny distance. This neurotransmitter crosses that tiny distance and attaches to what's called a receptor. This is a molecule on the surface of another neuron or another cell that recognizes very specifically that molecule, the neurotransmitter. The signaling molecule, it is known as a ligand of the receptor. So, in this presentation, our ligand is going to be GLP-1, and that GLP-1 has receptors. Well, Dr. Brown... Our classic understanding of GLP-1 is that it's a hormone in the body. Yep. And next slide, just to cover our bases, uh, that's a classic example of a ligand receptor based on a hormonal system. So you see that surface of the cell, you got that red-orange structure that that's a receptor and it recognizes a molecule or a hormone, binds it, and then you get that cascade of events down the road but the bottom line is ligand receptor glp1 in this podcast is our ligand and we're going to look at its receptors fair very okay so with that in mind we look at the human protein atlas and look glp1 receptors where do we find them in the human body in the brain yes in the hypothalamus right several locations in the brain um, and yeah. you also find them, of course, in the pancreas mm-hmm. and in the bowel. You got them. You got in some. Get some of those receptors in the heart. Um, but primarily, it's brain, pancreas, um, and in the small intestine. Mm-hmm. And you get them in the vagus nerve, vagal afferent nerve fibers. In other words, afferent. We'll talk more about this in a second. So the gut communicates with the brain through the vagus nerve. Signals going from gut to the brain, those are afferent signals. Going in the other direction, brain to gut, those are efferent signals. So those signals going from gut to brain, those nerve fibers have tons of GLP-1 receptors on them. All right. So... This slide shows um, what we call a villus. So this is inside the intestine. This is based on the small intestine. And this the intestine is just filled with these little <clears throat> bumps, villi, and this increases the surface area of the gut, which we'll talk about in a minute. But in this crypt and villus here, Um, This is really where the cells in the gut that generate the GLP-1 live. The important point is down at the bottom of that crypt, those yellow cells, those are stem cells. Those stem cells, like baby cells, they can differentiate or mature into different types of cells uh, on that lining of the intestine. Um, The cell type of interest here is the enteroendocrine cell. You see them there in red or purple. Pinkish. Pinkish. Um, And as, so a a typical cell on the surface in the gut, it only lasts four or five days and then it's sloughed off and excreted in the stool. Uh, So it's a migration from the bottom of that crypt where you see the yellow cells 
as the cells mature, they migrate up that villus to the tip and then they're sloughed off. But the cell matures or differentiates. And so this is a very important process. And that process of maturation is implicated in obesity and these other metabolic problems. Skip that. So this slide shows some of those <clears throat> cell lines, types of cells that can be produced from the stem cells. Uh, you've got enteroendocrine cells, goblet cells, panic cells, tuft cells, and then you just did what's called a generic um, enterocyte. These are cells on the surface in the gut that just absorb the nutrients. Um, and it's very interesting that different, the foods that we eat can determine the direction of this maturation. Fascinating. That too is a factor in obesity and diabetes. And so what we had talked about before is that um, with certain profiles of nutrient intake or even in obesity and diabetes, correct? Yes. They, there is a predominance of the, of the enterocrine, nope, did I say that right? Enterocyte. Enterocyte cells, right? Um, and less of the enteroendocrine cells. Yes. So that, transmitting ones. So in this podcast, we've talked about a lot about hyperpalatable foods. These are processed foods. They're engineered. <clears throat> they have very deleterious effects on the brain. They're not good for us. What you find is that when you consume these foods, that process of maturation is effective. And that stem cell is more likely to grow into an enterocyte that is absorbing nutrients than an enteroendocrine cell that is signaling to the brain. So you get that change in cell population, the signals to the brain, the initial cells that are sending that signal, you get fewer of them and you get more cells that are absorbing nutrients. So this is from a group out of Duke. They have an absolutely amazing group out there. This is a 3D uh, picture model of an enteroendocrine cells. The classic idea or model of it is this little droplet looking cell. In reality, they're very elongated cells. So off to the left there, so the, the enteroendocrine cell, you see it in greenish. The whole thing is an enteroendocrine cell. Off to the left, you see the microvilli. So it's that part of that cell that's touching the villus. And on the other end, you see it's this. On the, on the lumen side, on the gut yes. side. Yes, yeah. yep, gut side. And this cell extends um, deep beneath uh, the other cells along the basement membrane, and it abuts uh, tips of nerve fibers, as well as other things, immune cells, other enterocytes, a lot of different cells. So just the structure of the enteroendocrine cell is far more complicated than we believed for a long time. Um, and this slide is very good at demonstrating that. Next slide, same group, had a duke. Here they show it in relation to glial cells. Now, glial cells, these are typically thought of as occurring in the brain. They are supportive cells for brain cells, neurons. And so it's fascinating that these enteroendocrine cells are surrounded by glial cells. Very significant. 
Um, this slide shows that enteroendocrine cells, they generate what are called action potentials. Action potentials. In other words, along the membrane of the cell, the surface of the cell, there's an electrical current that flows down that long axis of the cell. Um, very significant. So it contacts the, the glia, which communicates with the vagus nerve, and that's transmitting what information? Well, um, a lot of information. So the, the surface of the enteroendocrine cell that's facing the gut, it, it's, it's sensing what's in the food and the bacteria in the gut. Its, its job is to determine and to sense what's inside the intestine, and it's relays, relaying these very complicated signals, um, primarily to those nerve fibers, as well as to surrounding cells like immune cells. So, if anything, just saying that there's a three millisecond um, transmission of information, our brain is having information about the things that we're eating on a much faster and more efficient basis than depending on circulating hormones. Great point. Talk about efficiency. So, again, this enteroendocrine cell, this neuropod cell, it is abutting or right up against these nerve fibers. From the time it releases a molecule, signaling molecule across that tiny distance, three microseconds, that signal is uh, received in the base of the brain. Extremely fast. Good point. Um, and this is just a cartoon diagram of the enteroendocrine cell there in green. Uh, it interacts with other nerve fibers, the glial cell. Um, so it's incredibly complicated and sophisticated. And so if we back up and look at this cell type and, okay, what is this cell really doing? What type of a cell is it? So it has long projections we call neuropods. These are these function a lot like axons for uh, in brain cells or neurons. Uh, the cell contains what's called neurofilament, different proteins along the neuropod. These are proteins that are found specifically in brain in neurons, nerve cells. Uh, does have secretory granules concentrated in the neuropod. And it is surrounded by glial cells. So secretory granules, kind of alluding to the fact that that's where a neurotransmitter would be held and released. Or quote-unquote hormone. The, the traditional dogma is that these cells are releasing GLP-1 to go into the bloodstream and float around and affect different parts of the body. Um, so... Okay, these next two slides, these are just... Um, outlining different receptors that are found on the lumen side of the enteroendocrine cells. In other words, that part of the enteroendocrine cell that is facing the gut, facing the food, the bacteria, um, it has lots of different receptors, types of receptors. There's different families of receptors. Some will recognize glucose. Some will recognize fatty acids or the fat that we eat. But it's not that generic. It's, there are different receptors for different fatty acids, 
different receptors for amino acids. You got receptors for bacterial byproducts uh, like butyrate. So on the one side of the cell, it's a very complicated system of sensing. Um, and so that's what you see there. All the different receptors that are used by the cell to sense what's in the gut. On the other end of the enteroendocrine cell, that part of the cell that is touching nerve fiber, other cells, immune cells, other neurons, um, it can release up to 25-ish different molecules that serve as messengers. And so the first one there you see is GLP-1. You got GIP, NPY, PYY, all these different, and this is just a partial list. It used to be thought that one kind of enteroendocrine cell, an L cell, would release GLP-1. As human beings, we like to think in concrete terms. Truth is, one enteroendocrine cell can release a multitude of different types of these molecules in different amounts. Um, so, this one cell is relaying incredibly sophisticated, detailed information to these nerve fibers and the cells around it. We think of computers, you know, complicated circuitry of uh, computers that uses ones and zeros. Already in this system, in the body, lining of the gut, it's got 20, 30 different receptors on one side, or instead of ones and zeros, it's zero to 30. And on the other side, same thing. Very sophisticated. Talk surface area. Surface area. This is something that blew my mind early on. And I think we've all heard it in some form or another. The numbers have changed a little bit over the years. But when you think about the surface area of the gut, it's not just the surface area of laying out that tube. It's going back to that picture of the villi, the villi and being able to microscopically iron out every single one of those. And it turns out to be closer to 400 square feet. Um, in other words, mouth to anus, the GI tract, gastrointestinal tract, it's about 30 feet long. And within that 30 feet, there's around 400 square feet of surface area. And it's estimated that 1% of all the cells over that 400 square feet surface area, 1% are enteroendocrine cells. In a healthy gut. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So roughly equivalent to this badminton. Yeah, badminton court. I love badminton. Something like that. So do I. Yeah. So it's enormous surface area. It's the biggest sensory organ of the body, really. Um, and it's got millions and billions of these enteroendocrine cells relaying a very sophisticated, detailed uh, set of signals. Uh, when I was in college, I learned about mass spectroscopy, and that blew my mind how you can put a substance in a machine and the machine can tell you what's in it, what, what it is. I think the human brain is better than mass spectroscopy at determining what's in the gut as well as how much. Absolutely mind-boggling. And you had mentioned before that the nerve fibers or the, maybe the number of nerve fibers and their capacity to transmit information aren't necessarily sufficient to explain the amount of information that's being received in the central nervous system. 
Yes. So it's estimated that the vagus nerve has about 100,000 fibers. And if you look, you consider the messages that are sent back and forth between brain and gut. The information is so much greater than can be transmitted through 100,000 fibers. And so it's thought that there's local some degree of local management control integration of information in the gut. Um, you can sort of, sort of think of it as a zip file of the computer. The stomach, the intestines can create zip files. With all these complicated yeah. chemicals that it's spitting out. Yeah, and it sends it through those 100,000 fibers. And so there's actually more information transmitted that then could reasonably be explained by those fibers themselves. So cool. Amazing. All right. So something very important to understand about GLP-1 in a normal human being is that it is broken down incredibly quickly. Uh, there's a, an enzyme found almost everywhere in the body. It's called DPP-4, dipeptidyl peptidase 4. Um, it breaks down GLP-1. It also breaks down GIP. Um, and studies, very technically sophisticated studies, have demonstrated consistently that you take all those enteroendocrine cells that are generating and releasing GLP-1, um, that GLP-1, the vast majority of it, is broken down on site. In other words, near those nerve fibers that are being signaled by the enteroendocrine cells, as they enter the tiny little blood vessels, they're lined with this enzyme, and that GLP-1 is broken down very quickly right there. Um, about... 20, 30% of the GLP-1 survives in the blood vessels um, long enough to hit the liver, and the liver very aggressively breaks it down as well. And it's estimated that around only 10% of the GLP-1 generated by the gut makes it into the systemic circulation, in other words, into the bloodstream. And that GLP-1, that 10% that makes it into the bloodstream, its half-life is about 90 seconds. In other words, Almost all of it is broken down within 90 seconds of leaving the liver. And it's the DPP-4 and the rest of the vasculature that's continuing to break it down? Yes, it's DPP-4 in the gut, in the liver, all the blood vessels throughout the body. It's essentially everywhere. So you back up and you look at this and you think, if this is a hormone, that's a really bad design. It is incredibly inefficient. Um, it really looks as if it's not a hormone. It's something else. Um, it's the vast majority of it is broken down very quickly right after it's generated by these enteroendocrine cells. Um, again, the traditional dogma belief is that, hey, these cells in the gut, they release this GLP-1. It's a hormone that floats around in the blood, travels to the pancreas and signals to the pancreas to release insulin. Well, the truth is, you know, I think most doctors think of, well, the pancreas is close to the intestines. And so the GLP-1 made in the intestines floats by the pancreas and signals to it. That's not true. And you see there that it's the small veins from the small intestine 
that travel into what's called the portal venous system, um, never having any contact with the pancreas. It goes through the liver. From the liver, it goes in what's called the inferior vena cava, the biggest vein in the body. It goes up to the right side of the heart. From there, it goes to the lungs. The blood is oxygenated. The blood returns to the left side of the heart, left ventricle, the main pump of the heart, and then it's pumped out into the systemic the arterial circulation. And then from there, it goes to all parts of the body, including the pancreas. So, so just like a lot of other things absorbed in the gut, it hits the liver with first pass effect and is yes. mitigated before being washed around the body. Right. So by the time the blood from the intestines, so say a GLP-1 molecules are generated by the enteroendocrine cell, if that's going to signal to the pancreas, GLP-1 receptor in the pancreas, it's got to go through the portal venous system, inferior vena cava, right side of the heart, lungs, left side of the heart, out of the left ventricle into the systemic circulation and into the pancreas. And it's estimated that less than 5% of the GLP-1 generated would ever reach the pancreas. Again, it suggests that this is either a very bad design for efficiency or GLP-1 is not a hormone. Um, okay. So, this slide, this, these graphs here, we'll go through here and try to explain this. So, this is in a study in rats. And fortunately, we can do some pretty amazing experiments in rodents and animals and figure things out from a mechanistic standpoint. How do things work? Um, it's extremely helpful um, to use them as a model. So, this study is, was done in rats. And in these rats, they, it's called knockdown or knockout. They knocked down or knocked out all the GLP-1 receptors in the afferent fibers of the vagus nerve. In other words, they took away the gut's ability to use GLP-1 to signal through the vagus nerve to the brain, um, or at least I should simplify that. They took away all the GLP-1 receptors in the gut. So in other words, what it's saying is we're looking at the hormonal effectiveness of GLP-1. So then thinking back to that, where are the GLP-1 receptors are? We still know they're in the brain. We still know they're in the pancreas. Yes. Okay. Yep. Um, so top left in A there. Um, I'm going to have to get my glasses. So the top row there, top three things, is looking at food intake. The effect of injecting GLP-1 and seeing what happens to the rats and how much food they eat. In the first graph there in A, uh, it was injected IP, that's intraperitoneal. So they're, it's using the GLP-1 receptors in the gut. And what you can see there is when you wipe out the GLP-1 receptors in the gut um, and you inject GLP-1 or an analog, 
you don't get the same inhibitory effect on food intake. In other words, mm-hmm. injecting GLP-1 inside the abdominal cavity doesn't inhibit food intake if the GLP-1 receptors in the gut are knocked out. This suggests that the GLP-1 receptors in the vagus nerve are very important for transmitting that signal between gut and brain. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Um, And let's see, in C, same model. These are rats whose GLP-1 receptors in their vagus nerve have been knocked out. But instead of injecting the GLP-1 into the abdominal cavity, they inject it into the brain. That's ICV. Mm-hmm. Um, and doing that did inhibit food intake. Um, In both groups, however, the wild-type rats, it was inhibited more compared to the uh, knockout vagal uh, receptor knockout rats. Right. Not to the same degree. Not to the same degree, correct. So it's like that first bar in each of these graphs on the top is where that was saline injected, right? Mm -hmm. And the second one is looking at after the uh, GLP-1 was injected either in intraperitoneal space or into the ventricles of the rats. Right. So, Again, emphasizing the importance of the vagus nerve in transmitting signals from the gut to the brain. Uh, the lower panel, I can never pronounce, what is it? Paracetamol. Paracetamol. So use paracetamol um, as that marker of gastric emptying. Yep. So, yeah, the, the white, those are normal rats. The ones in black, those are the ones that have the knockout of the GLP-1 receptors in the vagus nerve. Um, in those rats, you inject GLP-1 into the abdominal cavity, but you've knocked out the GLP-1 receptors in the vagus nerve. Um so there's no change there in the black columns, meaning that you knock out those GLP-1 receptors in the vagus nerve, gastric emptying um, is unaffected by that GLP-1. In the, in the knockout rats, whereas in wild-type rats and in physiology, it should have been reduced. Right. In other words, the vagus nerve is critical for the effects of normal GLP-1 as it affects emptying of the stomach. Um, and same, same idea going to the right there, the, the far right ICV again, injection into the brain. Uh, in the knockout mice, you see a significant inhibition of gastric emptying when GLP-1 is injected into the brain. Mm-hmm. Fair? Yes. Okay, next slide. Same study. Um, so A, it's just that was after an overnight fast. And they look at blood glucose. And they haven't eaten anything. They've been fasting overnight. And the clear clear column, um, that's the control. And then the knockout, the rats with GLP-1 receptor knocked out in the vagus nerve. No difference there in the blood glucose. But after a meal, you feed the rats. What you see is that blood glucose is higher in the rats who've had the GLP-1 receptors in their vagus nerve knocked out, suggesting that GLP-1 receptors in the vagus nerve are critical for the effect of GLP-1 on blood glucose. Mm -hmm. Uh, C, 
this is a meal. So it's important to note just experimenting with a glucose is very different than experimenting with a mixed meal. Mixed meal, you've got some fat, you've got some protein, you've got some sugars. That mixed meal, uh, what you see is in the rats who don't have GLP-1 receptors in the vagus nerve, their blood glucose after a mixed meal is higher. Same thing with insulin there indeed in in D. You knock out the GLP-1 receptors in the vagus nerve. Um, actually, I apologize. The insulin is lower in the knockout mice. In other words, the GLP-1 receptors in the vagus nerve are very important for stimulating insulin by the pancreas. Um, the bottom EFGH, you just see that there's no change in these groups in serum GLP-1, glucagon, and then the GNH, that's after a glucose tolerance test. A little bit different. We won't go into that. But again, the difference between a glucose test and a mixed meal test. All right. Uh, this next slide from Cell Metabolism, elegant study. They looked at DPP-4, dipeptidyl peptidase 4, the enzyme that breaks down GLP-1. Cut to the chase, what they showed is that it's the DPP-4 in the lining, the wall of the tiny little vessels in the intestines that knocks down or, or metabolizes, breaks down the vast majority of his GLP-1. That makes sense? Yes. So this is the study just validating what we were talking about earlier as far as most of that DPP-4 is, I'm sorry, most of that GLP-1 is broken down by the time it hits portal circulation. On site. Yes. Now, very fascinating fact. We mentioned very briefly GIP. This is the next in line as far as these injectables. What they found is that the GIP also was very quickly broken down by DPP-4 in the intestine, but it was primarily the DPP-4 enzyme found in immune cells that was responsible for, cle for breaking down and metabolizing, inactivating uh, GIP. Hmm. Fascinating. But a very elegant study demonstrating... Um, Again, the arrows seem to be pointing to the idea that GLP-1 is not a hormone. All right. So, this is a bold slide, but it's backed by the best and most current data. There are, I'll just say it, GLP-1 is not supposed to be a hormone, really. It looks like it is a neurotransmitter. Its job is to travel a very tiny distance between neurologically based cells, neurons, enteroendocrine cells, travel a tiny distance and signal to a, another cell. And there are three GLP-1 systems in the body, and these are relatively closed systems. So, okay, the one in the middle, let's hit that first. So there you see, you know, the... The intestines and the vagus nerve system. So that's number one, the gut. This, G, this huge surface area, 400 square feet surface area with all these enteroendocrine cells, that, all that GLP-1 is released and it appears that that's intended to signal 
the vagus nerve, all those millions of fibers of the vagus nerve transmit signals up into the brain. So So it's action potentials traveling up to the brain, not GLP-1 itself. Correct. GLP-1 is merely one of many molecules used in the gut to signal to these tiny afferent nerve fibers in the gut. And those nerves transmit that message up into the brain. So that's the gut GLP-1 system. Uh, number two is the brain, and that's the one on the right. So two very, I know it's a little confusing, two very important structures in the brain there. You see sort of in the middle, down on the bottom, NTS. That's nucleus of the uh, tractus solitarius. It's sort of uh, the filter for the vagus nerve. All the signals of the vagus nerve are essentially going through the NTS. Um, the brain, the NTS, and the hypothalamus further up, they use GLP-1 also as a neurotransmitter. In other words, there are neurons or nerve cells in the NTS that generate and release GLP-1 along its axon further up into the brain. And communicating with other tracts and brain centers. Now, something we had talked about before was that the nerve signals that are stimulated by GLP-1 in the gut don't necessarily result in GLP-1 being released uh, by the NTS in the brain. Correct. Skipping forward. Yes, Sorry. a little bit, but can't be over. The importance of that cannot be overstated. So, but yes, in other words, there's also a closed system that uses GLP-1 as a neurotransmitter in the brain. Third one, and this is going to shock most people. And that is, there is a GLP-1 system in the pancreas. In other words, there are cells in the pancreas known as alpha cells. And we'll talk about this in our next technical podcast. This is incredible stuff. So alpha cells in the pancreas, they're known for generating glucagon. I think that is actually a hormone, but they also generate GLP-1. And they signal beta cells. Beta cells are the ones that generate insulin. And so more and more data is suggesting there's also a closed system that uses GLP-1 as a messenger system in the pancreas. So, again, it is consistent with the idea that GLP-1 is not a hormone. It's used locally. And the GLP-1 generated in the gut, it's not intended to float around in the bloodstream and hit the pancreas and signal that way. Pancreas has its own GLP-1 system, which gets out of whack in diabetes. To your point, Kate, this was an amazing study, Nature Metabolism, uh, two years ago, I want to say. Yeah, two years ago. They showed and the, the technology they have, the methods they have is absolutely astonishing. They can evaluate and interrogate single neurons and determine what signals are going where. What these uh, researchers showed is that you take all the vagus nerve, afferent nerve fibers that have GLP-1 receptors on them down in the gut. You follow those nerve fibers into the NTS, part of the medulla, 
they signal to second and third order neurons, not with GLP-1, but typically glutamate, ATP, and some other neurotransmitters. Now, reverse it. I mentioned a minute ago that there are neurons in the NTS that release GLP-1 up into the brain. Other neurons, second, third order neurons in the brain. The vast majority of those fibers that have axons, axons down in the gut, or dendrites, it is oxytocin that stimulates those neurons. Does that make sense? Yes. So it's not so much that GLP-1 released in the gut signals something to release GLP-1 up in the brain. It's that GLP-1 in the gut is going to result in, in glutamate release in the brain. Yeah, primarily. different neurotransmitters. Yeah, I'm sure it's a lot more complicated than me just drawing it in crayon. But, um, or that oxy, <laughs> oxytocin uh, released downstream does result in central release of GLP-1. Yes. Okay. And of all the neurons in the NTS, in the base of the brain, that release GLP-1 as a messenger further up into the brain, it's estimated 3% of them have GLP-1 receptors on their fibers in the gut. Just a little bit. So, the point being is that they are separate systems. They are in parallel, not in series. Um, so, again, the, these injectables... They've done some positive things, in other words, in our thinking. One of the things it has shown is the role of the brain in obesity and diabetes. Um, I've been a little bit of a <laughs> on my own island for a while in claiming that. And so I'm grateful, actually, these injectables, now everybody realizes, not everybody, but a lot of people realize that didn't before, ooh, it's the brain. So I'm actually grateful for these injectables in the sense that they've pointed they, those out. Um, the other thing is that they increase insulin in the blood. So there are people who say, look, insulin resistance, it's the fundamental root cause of insulin resistance is just too much insulin. But if GLP-1 analogs or these synthetic forms of GLP-1, if they increase insulin, but also improve insulin resistance. You know what I mean? That, that begs the question. Points out that error in thinking. So, takeaways. So far, uh, there are a lot of takeaways. Here's a very important one. So, studies have shown if you knock out all the GLP-1 receptors in the brain... In a healthy person who just has his, his or her normal GLP-1 generated in the gut, if you knock out all, all the GLP-1 receptors in the brain, that does not do anything to blood glucose, insulin sensitivity, fasting-free insulin, which is interesting. So using the rat models with a knockout of central GLP-1 receptors, yep. they showed that those other systems that were peripheral still continued to function as they should. Yep. Okay. Um, on the other hand, you knock out all the GLP-1 receptors in the vagus nerve, that does not affect these synthetic injectable GLP-1 analogs. The, so the idea is 
these injectable synthetic GLP-1 analogs, they are not using the normal system. The normal physiology, GLP-1 physiology. Makes sense, as in those analogs are acting on the other receptors. Yes, some people think that, hey, um, like someone's just low in GLP-1, we're giving them more, and it's using the native normal system. Couldn't be further from the truth. Um, Okay. Just looking back at the the higher levels of GLP-1 in people with diabetes, I think that addresses the the concept of it being a resistance versus a deficiency. Right. Pretty efficient. So, and that's, it's a good point. Let's state here that you find everywhere, look, they, the claim is that GLP-1 is a hormone and people who are obese and diabetic, they have an insufficiency of GLP-1. Totally incorrect. Um, what you find is that fasting active GLP-1 is higher than normal in obese individuals and diabetic individuals. The response to a meal is not as a, uh, robust as a normal healthy person. It's still higher, but you don't get the same proportional increase after a meal. So just like someone who's diabetic isn't insulin insufficient, they have too much insulin, the same thing, same principle applies with GLP-1. Yeah. Okay. So uh, this is a study, 2012. Uh, they looked at what they did. They attached radioisotopes to GLP-1 analogs. Okay, what this means, they take synthetic GLP-1, just like what is in these weight loss injections, but they labeled them with a mildly radioactive substance and they could follow this in person's body and see what happens where it goes and in this study they specifically looked at how much of that glp1 was attached to its receptor in the liver the liver is a major site of glp1 receptors and glp1 transmits some important messages to the liver so up top there you see the lean person so someone who has a normal body weight, metabolically healthy, you see a pretty robust, it's yellow, green, some orange up there. That's the portal venous system. In other words, that's the normal binding of GLP-1 to its receptor. Down below, you see a person who's obese, and this is representative of other subjects in their study. Uh, You get a much lower binding, and the interpretation is that those the obese individual had fewer receptors in the portal venous system and in the liver, um, which again would explain why someone who's obese or diabetic would have higher than normal levels of GLP-1 in their blood. Side note: I also noticed that the title of that study is "A Local Glucagon-Like Peptide System in Human Pancreatic Islets." Did they actually follow that same radiomarking process in pancreas as well? Uh, I'm going to have to look at that. Yeah, this was an elegant study. I have to look at that. No, I, I don't know. remember. Inquiring minds. Yeah. All right. So, this is the, the main question of this podcast. And this is back in 2011, the journal Endocrinology. What if gut hormones aren't really hormones? Are they neurotransmitters, basically? And I again, the data really points to that as being the case. 
I also like to point out that the author is a University of Cincinnati mm. staff member, you know, nice. alma mater. So at least one good thing came out of there. Okay, so let's jump in in earnest and look at these GLP-1 analogs. But let's dive in and, and really look at that question. Well, maybe it's worth addressing too, uh, kind of our history and how this all got, how it all got started. But um, the Ozempic and Wagovi and Ribelsis, all these GLP-1 analogs, um, definitely play into our scope, you know, yeah. in metabolic medicine and trying to people help people heal obesity and metabolic disease. And so that's, and they are things that we have, you know, experienced with patients as well. Yeah. Starting almost a couple of years ago. Yeah. I prescribed these injections for a select group of people. And I quickly had concerns with what we were seeing and what I saw in other clinics raised concerns um but yeah i we've prescribed these medications for people good point um yeah, there, were, there were things clinically that had you know presented some concern but then also your love of the science too and just that spurred a couple of years worth of very intense research and reading and i think that's yeah. how we are at this conversation right yeah. now so we were open to it much more open to it two years ago than we are now um, very good point. Um, what we've seen in clinic started this rabbit hole of trying to figure out what's really going on with these. And the more we learn, the less and less inclined I am to prescribe them. Do you want to touch on it all? Kind of what we saw? Well, it'll be demonstrated. Well, what did we see? I saw a lot of muscle loss. Um, it just was very different. Um, muscle loss. I saw some fatigue in some people. And so it's never a good sign. Whenever you have muscle loss, that indicates typically something's not good. What I had seen in clinic was patients who are on uh, GLP-1 analogs for weight loss as opposed to diabetes really struggled with losing weight afterwards and really struggled with interpreting hunger signals and feeling hungry more often. Um, and their weight loss just tended to be slower. That was yep. hard. Yep. Some people respond, some don't. Yeah, and I think we've totally figured out that. I have um, my theories. Yeah. Okay, so let's first look at some graphs from the step one trial. Uh, this was a big trial published in New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, in this slide, you see the weight loss that's in A. So 68 weeks on semaglutide, which is the active ingredient in Ozempic, um, and 52 weeks off of it. And what you saw, oh, excuse me, that's not weight. That's, that's first systolic blood pressure and then diastolic blood pressure. Interesting to note, they had a longer time on the medication than off. And by the end, systolic blood pressure, pressure was higher than when they started. Yeah. Uh, C-reactive protein went down, went on the injections, started to come back up afterwards. And just briefly, why why is CRP so, I'm sorry, C-reac yeah, CRP so important? It's just a generic marker of inflammation. So someone who's obese, who has diabetes, blood pressure, uh, metabolic disease, it's indistinguishable or it's, it's very closely integrated with inflammation. So we look at that one a lot. That's one yeah. of our, like classic pre and post-surgery labs. Yeah, they are in part inflammatory diseases. Yeah. 
So, indeed, this is an important one, and that is the effect on hemoglobin A1C, which is the one of the major markers that's checked in diabetics. Um, I think the t- time course is important here. There's some bias in this graph. 68 weeks on uh, semaglutide, 52 weeks off. And A1C, it's a three-month running average, in theory, of blood glucose. And so you're getting bias in that graph in that not just that they were on medication for 68 weeks and off of it for 52, um, but considering the fact that it's a three-month, 90-day running average of blood glucose, if you followed that out another, so it's a four-month difference, 16 months, excuse me, 16 weeks fewer off of the medication. So 12, 12 week? Uh, no, 60, 68 weeks on medication. I apologize. 52 weeks off. So there's a 16 week difference, four months. I and, see and again, when you consider the A1C being a three month running average, mm-hmm. that's biased. Yeah. It, it looks like, Oh, they had a greater benefit. It didn't go back to normal. Well, if you follow that out, you have to think that it goes back to what it was before. And such a rapid return to pre-medication baseline after that discontinuation. And I know it's on one data point, but A1C started to go up before they came off of the medication. That's um, and there is evidence of desensitization. We, we know that happens with the GLP-1 receptor and there's a whole science and pharma is looking into how do you decrease the desensitization or the tolerance. Another topic. Okay. Also from the same study in the New England Journal, this is body composition. Um, so what they showed, here's the amount of weight lost from different types of uh, tissues, visceral fat, total fat, lean body mass. So on average, people lost 6.92 kilograms of lean body mass, which it's, it's not um, super specific, but it's used as a surrogate or a marker of muscle. So it turns out that was about a 40%, 40% of the amount of weight lost was coming from lean body mass or muscle. Um, and this got a lot of attention, at least people I think who are into physiology and aging. Um, every other means of weight loss, including bariatric surgery. So bariatric surgery, the studies show anywhere from a 16 to a 24% muscle loss, meaning of all the weight that's lost after bariatric surgery, it's anywhere from 16 to 24% comes from muscle. So 40%, in other words, there's something else going on and it's something that alarms me and a lot of other people. I think it's worth noting in the study as well, the, the study group was overweight or obese adults, but not necessarily those with diabetes. So maybe metabolically healthy. Okay, yeah. Um. There are other clinics reporting a 50% rate. In other words, of all the weight people lose, 50% of it is coming from muscle. So I know people who are on these medications and I tell them, look, if you're going to do that medication, 
you eat animal protein, you lift weights to try to minimize the amount of weight loss. So in this diagram, to, to understand what we're going to present requires a basic understanding of the nervous system as well as the autonomic nervous system. So here's a, a simple diagram. You essentially can break the nervous system into two parts, the central nervous system, which is the brain and the spinal cord, into everything else, which is the peripheral nervous system. Now, in the peripheral nervous system, there are two branches of that. There's the somatic nervous system. Those are the nerves that are controlling muscle. Oh, yeah. Sorry, there were no muscles there, but you get the idea. Yes. Autonomic nervous system. Um, incredibly important part of the nervous system. Think of it as automatic. The autonomic nervous system controls everything that you never think about. Things that it seem to be automatic. Um, dilation of the pupil, pulse, respiratory rate, digestion, bladder control, all kinds of things you never think about. Um, you don't have to think about it because this branch of the nervous system is controlling it. It has your back. So that autonomic nervous system has two branches. Some would argue, and I would agree, there are three branches. But the main ones we're going to talk about are the sympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system. This is known as the fight or flight branch of the autonomic nervous system. You're in the woods, you see a grizzly bear, you're freaked out very quickly. There's a thousand different changes that happen in your body. Um, this is the sympathetic response. Then there's the parasympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system known as rest and digest. This is recovery, um, healing, digestion, calm. This is sort of when you meditate, you're activating the parasympathetic nervous system. And really, a healthy nervous system has a balance of those two, this um, sympathetic, parasympathetic. Balance between those branches of the autonomic nervous system is critical for health and longevity. How do we measure that? <laughs> that balance. Um, all right. Heart rate variability. Again, this is going to get a little technical. Um, so important, I think, to understand heart rate variability. You can think of it as a measure of the balance between the sympathetic and parasympathetic branches of the autonomic nervous system. So let's look at that first, heart rate, heart rate variability. On this diagram, you got the little diagram of an EKG recording. You got those little spikes up, and it's got these waves, QRS, P waves. This is the electrical activity of the heart as it beats. And we like to, we typically think of a healthy person has a very steady, consistent heartbeat. It's actually not true. Uh, you think about it, you, you go from sitting to standing, the blood pools, your blood pressure tends to drop. You want, you want your, your heart rate to pick up a little bit to compensate for the blood pressure drop. Right. So in reality, in a healthy person, there's, there's tiny little variations of time duration between those spikes. And it's really a reflection of adaptability, flexibility. You're, your nervous system's ability to respond to all the stuff that you encounter. So we want HRV, heart rate variability, to be high. 
When HRV is high, that reflects a good balance between sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems. When heart rate variability, HRV is low, it indicates imbalance. And that essentially always means too much relative sympathetic activity and too low parasympathetic activity. It's always a shift in that direction, a decline in parasympathetic activity. Um, All right. So the vagus nerve, it has a very critical role in heart rate variability. Think of the vagus nerve as the primary generator, along with a hypothalamus, of parasympathetic activity. The afferent signals going from organs in the abdomen into the brain, the afferent signals signals through the vagus nerve into the brain, that is home central of parasympathetic activity. Um, And so what you see with HRV is as a person has declining function of the vagus nerve, specifically from gut into brain, HRV goes down because they have lower and lower parasympathetic activity. Make sense? Makes sense. So the vagus nerve is responsible for a lot of the sensation, but also the action that your body has with those those organs monitoring all those autonomic functions and also changing those autonomic functions. Well, you can think about when you're running from a bear in the woods. Oh, I was going to fight the bear. Okay, well. If it's fight or flight, I'm going to fight. I just drop dead and uh, act like I'm dead. Um, You're fighting that bear, Miss Kate. You want your parasympathetic system to sort of turn off to some degree so that you have all your resources to fight that grizzly bear. Um, The problem is when that becomes a chronic state, Mm -hmm. that imbalance, high sympathetic, low parasympathetic, that affects every tissue, every organ in the body. So this is what's known as a classic J curve. So if you look at sympathetic nervous activity... On the x-axis along the bottom, that's the amount of sympathetic activity. As you go to the right, you get higher and higher sympathetic activity. On the left, the y-axis, it's cellular organ dysfunction. So what you see, there's a sweet spot, that lowest part in that line. That's where the sympathetic nervous system is in balance with a parasympathetic activity or parasympathetic Uh, nervous system and there's health things are healthy they're cycling as they should be when you go either to the left or to the right that line goes up in other words you get greater and greater cellular and organ dysfunction and what we see and we'll go through typically in america we're going to the right Mm -hmm. as we become metabolically unhealthy we have higher and higher relative sympathetic nervous activity and we have Every tissue in the body suffers as a result. Another bold slide. Uh, These are the tissues and organs that are damaged or suffer by this imbalance in the autonomic nervous system. Too much sympathetic, not enough parasympathetic. Coronary arteries, the arteries that supply 
the heart and atherosclerosis. You look in patients with atherosclerosis, they have low HRV. In fact, low HRV precedes coronary artery atherosclerosis. You get lower HRV before you see that same thing with congestive heart failure. Pancreas, in both diabetes mellitus type 1 and 2, you see a shift, high sympathetic tone to the pancreas and low parasympathetic tone. Lungs, you see that with asthma, reactive airway disease. Sympathetic tone to the lungs is high, parasympathetic is low. Muscle is an important point, and we'll talk more about it. Sarcopenia, it's essentially loss of muscle. You see this in metabolic disease and in aging in general. What you see is that before people become weak and before they have muscle loss, you see that shift. You have increased sympathetic activity into the neurons, the neuromuscular junction of those skeletal muscles. Liver. Fatty liver. A lot of people are more and more familiar with fatty liver. Same pattern. Um, Increased sympathetic activity in the liver and it progresses um, with fatty liver even to cirrhosis brain you see it with alzheimer's disease parkinson's disease stroke in other words before people develop these diseases hrv can serve as a predictor if hrv is low these diseases are more likely kidney disease chronic renal insufficiency again this, this imbalance in the autonomic nervous system precedes the development of kidney disease. Same thing with bone. You look in patients who have osteoporosis. They have high sympathetic signaling to the bone, which is one of the primary governors of bone density and bone growth. Fat. The fat in the visceral fat as well as subcutaneous fat. Mm-hmm. What you see is higher sympathetic tone, lower parasympathetic tone, of course, in mental health, you see the same pattern. As in every single one of development of these, of these conditions, it's been documented that there's increased sympathetic tone to certain tissues that precedes a disease. None of it is controversial. Just We just don't think of it this way. We don't put it together. Um, and I, even, this is a step further, low HRV precedes all of these diseases. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. If, if HRV is, is a marker of that sympathetic imbalance, that definitely follows. Okay. So let's talk heart rate for a second. Of course, this balance of sympathetic, parasympathetic, one of the things it influences is pulse, heart rate. Um, in this graph, you just see the simple relationship between heart rate and, excuse me, survival. As people's resting heart rate goes up, their survival goes down. Increased sympathetic tone relative to parasympathetic tone. Yes. HRV going down. Yes. Yes. So this parallels HRV. Um, And this next graph, uh, this is looking at hazard ratios um, and HRV. In other words, the relationship between Heart rate variability, HRV, and all-cause mortality. All-cause mortality, and this has been known for quite a while. HRV predicts premature death. In other words, low HRV predicts mm-hmm. 
premature death. It's okay. So let's talk more about heart rate and sympathetic, parasympathetic. So if you take the heart out of a human being and just put it on its own, it can do its own thing. It's preferred heart rate is about 110. So no external neurological influence. It wants to beat 110 beats per minute. Now, of course, sympathetic nerves increase heart rate, parasympathetic, slow heart rate. And so what this means, the average heart rate, what, 70? Yeah, 60 to 100 is normal, right? Yes, and happy to say my heart rate's gone down over the last 10, 15 years. Congratulations. One thing that's I've worked on. Um, what it suggests, though, is that heart rate is primarily or most directly controlled or influenced by parasympathetic input. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. I've heard people explain this from an evolutionary standpoint. So, parasympathetic nervous activity has a quicker on and off switch. You can turn it on and off much faster than the sympathetic. I'm following. Okay. So, if, if, you're, if you take away parasympathetic input, it takes longer for sympathetic fibers to increase heart rate or pulse. And that's much slower to turn off. Whereas parasympathetic withdrawal of it and turning it on changes heart rate much faster. It's a, a quicker switch. So it makes sense that the parasympathetic nervous system would have primary control of heart rate. Follow? Yeah. When you want your heart rate to be adjusting to those movements and very quick events like standing up or seeing a bear, you want that a very quick response. So yeah, that makes sense. It's more efficient. Yeah. So when you see a generalized increase in heart rate, you have to think or wonder, ooh, HRV or the balance between sympathetic, parasympathetic, are we seeing a shift in that balance influencing a change in basal heart rate? All right. As in basal heart rate in a normal human, it's mostly being guided by sufficient parasympathetic yes. input when we reduce parasympathetic parasympathetic input. You feel like that's a lot of the, well, I guess it's not binary. It's that balance between those yeah. two. But with, if a person's like consistently, their heart rate goes up, increases, it should direct your mind to this balance in the autonomic nervous system. Not enough that, parasympathetic. Exactly. To yeah. Yep. Okay, so in this diagram, you just, again, emphasizing the importance of the vagus nerve in all this. You have the afferent signaling going from the gut to the brain. The efferent is brain to gut. Um, extremely important. And afferent, efferent. Also, the vagus nerve is primary control of heart, lungs, all kinds of stuff. But that directionality is, is so important to understand. Okay. What in the world does this have to do with GLP-1 and these injectables? Okay, this is from a study, I think it was 2017. They took these um, healthy subjects and they administered GLP-1 analogs, these injectables. And it was very well controlled 
and they wanted to know how these injectables, this GLP-1 analog, affected heart rate and heart rate variability. What they found is a shift in the balance of the autonomic nervous system. Again, technical, but what you can see there, um, heart rate variability, it can become a statistical matter very quickly. In other words, it's, it can be very complicated, all kinds of ways of measuring it, components. It can be broken down and analyzed in a thousand different ways. Trust me, from this graph, uh, liraglutide, that's the GLP-1 analog versus placebo. Um, what they saw is the people who got the GLP-1 analog. So heart rate variability indices, SDNN, RMSSD, you see a decline in those. And off to the right, you see uh, statistical significance for SDNN decrease, uh, total power decrease, LF, HF, that's low frequency, high frequency, as well as below there, you saw an increase in heart rate. So this should get people's attention. These drugs, um, they shift that balance in the autonomic nervous system according to this study. And it's essentially not controversial whatsoever that these injectables increase heart rate pulse. I mean, every study will admit that. And the assumptions have been, well, the heart has GLP-1 receptors. Maybe GLP-1 that we're loading people up with, it's, it's signaling to its receptor in the heart and that increases pulse. Problem is, studies like this that suggest a shift in the autonomic nervous system and in primates, non-human primates, they remove the hearts and put them essentially in a bath of GLP-1 and it did not affect heart rate. So, it's pretty convincing evidence to me that the change in heart rate and pulse with the use of these injectables, it's being mediated through the changes in the autonomic nervous system. All right. MSNA, we mentioned muscle. MSNA is muscle sympathetic nerve activity. Um, it's the amount of sympathetic nerve activity at the junction between the nerves that control the muscle and the muscle. And in this study, what you see is that obesity, what you see progressively, normal weight to overweight to obese, you have an increase in that MSNA, muscle sympathetic nerve activity. And off to the right, you, you know, the lean MSNA, the units aren't important, but 36 uh, with obesity, with hypertension, type 2 diabetes, you see an increase in that MSNA, muscle sympathetic nerve activity, which makes sense. In those metabolic diseases, you have shift in the autonomic nervous system, more sympathetic, not enough parasympathetic. Um, and so it makes sense that a shift in the autonomic nervous system, you're going to have more sympathetic activity um, at the junction with skeletal muscle. Is that clear? Yes. Now, why is that important? Okay, well, let's look at next graph. This is from 1998, 25 years ago. They just looked at MSNA, muscle sympathetic nerve activity, with aging. And as we know, aging is very consistently associated with muscle weakness, muscle loss. 
and MSNA increases as people age. And before people lose muscle mass, they lose muscle strength. Before they lose muscle strength, there are changes in the nerves. Mm-hmm. When you go to the gym and you're going to start working out and lifting weights, you get changes in the nerves first. Then you get increases in muscle strength. Then you get increases in muscle size. So the reason we care about MSNA relative to overall health and metabolic health is because it kind of precedes that muscle loss long-term. Yes. And it makes sense when people report, hey, there's muscle loss with these GLP-1 analogs and these injections. There's muscle loss, a lot more muscle loss than any other weight loss approach. Again, it points to a shift in the autonomic nervous system in an unhealthy direction. So it bears it out. Um, this next next graph shows a diagram of that neuromuscular junction. So top there, um, muscle nerve terminal. So that's where you know you got a place in your brain, the motor cortex. You activate a a neuron. It sends a signal down this nerve to a muscle, say your bicep, and it releases acetylcholine and a bunch of different things, and it sends this signal to the muscle to activate to flex well off to the right in green there you see sympathetic nerve varicosity essentially um it's beyond the scope of the conversation but the the sympathetic nerve fibers are right there and they have sort of a trophic they have a maintenance type effect on this junction between the motor nerve and the muscle A lot of people don't know that. A lot of physicians don't know that, and that's a super important thing. So what we see with aging is that sympathetic activity increases and it becomes imbalanced. You think of that J-curve, and it's thought to be related to and even causal to muscle strength loss and muscle mass loss, this sarcopenia of aging. So in some ways, it's almost counterintuitive as far as that sympathetic function you would think would somehow be resulting in like increased activity there or going to pump you up. Right. But then apparently there's this very counterintuitive um, after effect where really it's that increased sympathetic stimulations resulting in all these downstream effects of of dysfunction. It's the chronicity of it. It's Mm -hmm. just, it's the foot is always on the pedal, the gas pedal. And it's meant, you know, this system, the autonomic nervous system, like everything else, it's supposed to cycle, swing back and forth, recover, and all these different things. With these metabolic diseases, you get sort of pedal to the metal very consistently. That is a problem. Um, This next slide is from a study done in Ghana. Very interesting. Uh, They suggested they had to go someplace else to get appropriate controls due to American... Anyway, this study was done in Ghana, and what this shows is the relationship uh, between heart rate variability and muscle strength. They got found individuals, and they corrected for age, body composition, metabolic disease, everything else, muscle mass. They did a very good job of isolating HRV. People who metabolically look exactly the same, body composition, everything. Very, very well matched, but just differed in heart rate variability. And what they found 
is a direct correlation or direct relationship between HRV and muscle strength. In other words, the lower the HRV, the weaker the muscles. Mm -hmm. Nothing else would explain it. Um, The higher the HRV, the stronger the muscle. There are studies looking at American adolescents who are obese. And what they find is that they already have a decreased HRV and their muscle strength is lower than expected. So this is real physiology. It's really important physiology. Um, okay, so here's uh, an experiment. They gave injections, and they, this is a very direct measurement uh, looking at muscle sympathetic nerve activity, burst frequency before GLP-1 analog and after, and you see a pretty clear increase in MSNA. Again, in my mind, this is a pretty good explanation of why we have so much muscle loss with these injectables. Mm -hmm. All right, so GLP-1 analogs and heart rate, again, not controversial. This uh, graph is from a study in 2017 across the board. These GLP-1 analogs, they increase heart rate. And I think the healthier, healthier a person is, the greater the increase. Okay, so this really transitions us into who's most successful on these injections. And this is really interesting to me. Uh, This looks at the percent of weight lost um, based on a person's diabetic status, non-diabetic versus diabetic. And what you see is the non-diabetics lost more weight or lost greater percentage of their body weight compared to Diabetics. Interesting. So the people that were relatively more metabolically healthy lost more weight. Correct. With the In this study. Okay. Yep. Okay. Uh, this is looking at kidney function. Um, so this is looking at baseline kidney function, GFR filtration rate in the kidneys. And what they found is the people had healthier kidneys lost more weight. Now, sympathetic, parasympathetic, super important with kidney function. You get, you know, progressive kidney, chronic kidney disease. You see higher and higher sympathetic tone of the kidneys. So anyway, what this study showed is that the people with the healthier kidneys or higher GFR to begin with, they lost more weight when treated with these injections. Okay. Another study just last year came out. Um, What you see here is a pretty glaring relationship between baseline hemoglobin A1C and the change in hemoglobin A1C. Again, these medications started out being used in diabetics. Um, The higher a person's starting hemoglobin A1C the less their A1C improved. Hmm. In other words, the people who started out with the more healthy A1C, their A1C improved more. Uh, This graph is looking at BMI. And what you see is the people who had the highest BMI or who were most overweight saw the least amount of change in BMI or they lost the least percentage of weight. In other words, it was the people who didn't have as much weight to lose 
who tended to have the most success. And in this, you just see how this correlates with A1C, uh, how weight loss in the A1C correlates. In other words, the higher the A1C a person had starting off, the less successful, successful they were at losing weight. Okay, so this drives the point home. Success with GLP-1 analogs, Ozempic, Wagovi, etc., varies according to metabolic health and f- is a function of vagus nerve health. What it means is the people who are the metabolically who are metabolically most healthy are going to lose the most weight. So why is this? This is because those people are less likely to be GLP-1 resistant. And they are they have a healthier vagus nerve to begin with. What this data also points to is the idea that these injections are working very differently than GLP-1 uh, the way GLP-1 works in the body. That these GLP-1 injections are working as a hormone. Normal healthy person GLP-1 is a neurotransmitter. These injections are using a neurotransmitter as a hormone. And so what's happening is these injection injections, uh, the synthetic form of this molecule, they're very high level in people's body. They cross the blood-brain barrier they attach to and activate GLP-1 receptors in the brain. And it just is sort of incidental that we have, people have weight loss and their A1C gets better. Um, But in doing that, it is bypassing the vagus nerve. It's bypassing the normal system of signaling from the gut into the brain. And there is this principle in nature, use it or lose it. It is like muscle. If you don't use your muscle, it will get smaller and weaker. And so my fear is that in doing these injections and bypassing that vagus nerve, that vagus nerve is going to become more dysfunctional. And if you test these injections in people who are the most overweight, have the worst diabetes, they have heart disease, you're not going to damage the vagus nerve as much. It's already damaged. It's the younger 40-year-old woman who wants to lose 25 pounds, doesn't have diabetes, high blood pressure. You give them this GLP-1 analog, hey, they lose a lot of weight. But that vagus nerve is going to become more dysfunctional. My fear, my prediction is... People who use these injections for weight loss who do not have metabolic disease, when you come off of these injections, you will have metabolic disease. You will have insulin resistance, blood pressure issues, and the other stuff that goes with it. So we've already created some autonomic dysfunction and vagal nerve dysfunction that wasn't there before. Exactly. Um, Again, all these data point to this idea that these injections are affecting the autonomic nervous system in a direction that's unhealthy. When you withdraw the medication, you will be unmasking the ultimate result of that. So I would predict overall, again, it makes more sense than someone who's what we call brittle diabetic. They have heart disease. Okay, it makes more sense. 
some jumping and using these just for weight loss, which the FDA approved, I think that is dangerous and reckless. You're going to have people who just wanted to lose some weight. When they stop the medication, they're going to be insulin resistant. Um, also, vagus nerve input into the brain is important for cognitive function. So it makes sense to me that withdrawal of these medications will result in some people in a decline in cognitive function. That's scary. It's very scary. And I'm shocked by the lack of interest in this or the lack of attention to this. I'm shocked that the FDA approved these injections simply for weight loss. I guess I would tell somebody who's taking, using these medications, these injections for weight loss, you got to eat animal protein, avoid junk food, lift weights to try to avoid some of these. And that's just for muscle. Um, the glaring problem is we don't have long-term data on this stuff. This is just what we have over a year or two. And so you extrapolate out and so many people, 100 million people who have these problems, you put them all on these medications. It's a disaster. Overstatement? Time will tell. Yeah. We don't know. But the arrows point in a, in a scary direction in my mind. I think... Um, it's rich coming from a bariatric surgeon, but we have to point out, compared to bariatric surgery, the results of these uh, medications as far as weight loss, and, weight loss and diabetes doesn't come close to the success of bariatric surgery. And bariatric surgery works in the opposite direction. It restores the normal signaling mechanism through the vagus nerve. And because of that, that's why you get the changes in all-cause mortality after bariatric surgery, the improvement, the decreased uh, rates of cancer, Alzheimer's, heart disease, diabetes, such a quick reversal of diabetes and all these metabolic issues is you're, you're affecting that fundamental important part of the nervous system, the autonomic nervous system. Well, the goal really for this was information. Uh, again, I've scoured the interwebs, uh, looking for information. And, uh, you know, a lot of doctors will do videos. And the truth is, I don't know that they know much more than patients as far as this physiology. So I see a, a need for knowledge and understanding and a review of the literature. I think this is the most detailed video and podcast out there covering this topic. I hope it's helpful for those of you that have endured to the end. hope this is helpful. Um, it's something that we enjoy. And uh, one last slide. This is a... So what, what are the plans of pharma, pharmaceuticals? So GLP-1, we see weight loss in some people and improvement in diabetes. I mentioned all those molecules that these enteroendocrine cells release to signal to the brain through the vagus nerve. Well, pharma, big pharma, they, they have out there a combination of GLP-1 and GIP synthetic. They're looking at neuropeptide 1, glucagon. So they're, they're generating, they're creating whole cocktails of these molecules and the idea is, hey, let's blast the body with these things. 
Um, you know, I think of the analogy of monkeys with a hammer trying to fix a military helicopter. I mean, it's so, the system is so much more complicated than we think. Well, if anything, think about the illustration of insulin, right? Throwing one hormone into this whole symphony that needs to be operating a different way can result in declining metabolic health. Yes, improving A1C, but serious issues. And as just illustrated, GLP-1 is acting the same way. So throwing yet more hormones into the mix into the symphony hormones well they're being used as hormones but yeah um or things that should be used as neurotransmitters into the mix is not going to be helpful well thank you kate thank you for joining us this is brain over belly uh we have plans for more detailed podcasts technical scientific stuff we enjoy it and we've heard back from people who also want to hear more of this stuff. So we'll try to be balanced in what we, what we uh, plan for our podcast, but upcoming we'll talk about diabetes more specifically. So join us then. Thank you.